Daniel 11 is where we are at this evening. Daniel 11, towards the tail end here of this great book. If you were a fan of the innovative television show 24, you got used to a pattern that started to emerge in the show. Here's what would happen, at least to my recollection, back when I was watching the show. The season would start, and if you're unfamiliar with the show, it was 24 one-hour episodes that, that were all continuous in real time through one day. These were full days for poor Kiefer Sutherland. But the season would start, and you'd get introduced to the bad guy, and you get to know him a little and see the bad guy stuff that he did. And then at about the 12-hour mark, you'd start thinking, they're kind of wrapping up this story. What are they going to do for the rest of this season? And then that bad guy would get killed or captured, and then the real villain would show up. Whoa, the person behind the bad guy all along. And man, if you thought the first guy was bad, buckle up. But that happened a bunch of times. So after a while, I was like, okay, we're on episode 11. Next episode, that guy's going to die, and the real bad guy. And that was kind of a pattern, at least as I remember it. Now, the last quarter of the book of Daniel, chapters 10, 11, and 12, are the record of the last great vision that he received. In this vision, God takes Daniel from his current day through the end of the Persian Empire, through the rise of the uh, Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and ultimately to the Great Tribulation under a revived Roman Empire, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ to earth in his second coming. That's all covered in these chapters. Now, we're in chapter 11, which thus far has covered the decline of the Persian Empire, the rise and fall of Alexander the Great, and then the decades of war between the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucids of Syria. That's what we looked at last week. The vision then zooms in on one particularly evil king of the northern Syrian Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes. And the study last time, we highlighted the fantastic accuracy with which all of these things have been fulfilled down to the letter. In fact, Dr. John Walford points out that in the first 35 verses of chapter 11, there are approximately 135 prophetic statements all now fulfilled, every last one of them. Not 134 of them, not 132 of them, all of them historically fulfilled. Now, we're picking up in verse 29. We've seen Antiochus Epiphanes rise to power and his great success against the southern kingdom of Egypt. And tonight, we continue to learn about what he would do during his reign, but it won't stop there. By the end of our text, we will have vaulted over the millennia to a time yet future to us even when the Antichrist steps onto the world stage. And so the first bad guy, Antiochus, gives way to the ultimate bad guy, the Antichrist. And so let's begin at verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. So Antiochus Epiphanes, ruler of the Syrian Empire, had been very successful against the Egyptian Empire in the south. However, on this campaign that we're seeing in 29 and 30, he is going to be opposed by the Romans who come to the aid of the Egyptians. Rome was a fledgling power at the time, but they were effective in driving out the Syrian forces from the north. Angry and embarrassed, Antiochus turns toward home 
with his tail between his legs, and on his way, he decides he'll stop off in Jerusalem to vent his frustration against the defenseless Jewish people. You can read about all of his dealings with Israel in the books of First and Second Maccabees. If you have Version's Bible app, uh, you can select King James Version with Apocrypha American Edition, and you'll be able to read those books. Now, they're not canonical books, uh, but they're good sources for ancient history, and you can read those. You can also read about this period of time and the different things that were going on in H.A. Ironside's book, The 400 Silent Years. You can read that for free online. Just search H.A. Ironside, The 400 Silent Years, and you can read it. Super interesting, just different things that were going on in Israel, the rise of the Pharisee party and all that kind of stuff, and the sort of things that Antiochus was doing and what was going on with the revolution and all of that. Good stuff. Verse 31, and forces shall be mustered by him, Antiochus, And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Antiochus issued a command throughout his kingdom that everyone should abandon their own religions and instead follow after the Greek gods. He outlawed sacrifices. He outlawed observing the Sabbath. He outlawed circumcision. And then he topped it off by going into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, setting up a statue of Zeus, and then offering a pig on the altar to fully desecrate it for the Jewish people, rendering the temple absolutely inoperable uh, until a further time. Now, when reading prophecy, it's key to try to keep things that need to be separate in their proper place. When folks in the church or different um, systems of theology fall off track when it comes to prophecy, it's often because they're not keeping separate entities separate or separate events separate. For example, one of the big mistakes we would say that, that get made is when people confuse the church and Israel and say, that's the same group. And we say, well, no, in the Bible, there's always a differentiation between the church and Israel. And so you can't just combine them together and say, well, the prophecies are all mingled up here. And something like that kind of happens here a little bit too. We got to keep things separate and in their proper place. There are two abominations of desolation in the Bible. It's obviously a phrase you don't, that jumps out at you, right? It's a strange phrase. And you realize, hey, I, I see this phrase popping up from time to time uh, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But in the Bible, there are two abominations of desolation. You have this one, which already took place. It took place in 167 BC when Antiochus went in, set up that abominable idol, and desecrated the altar. And then you're going to have one which Daniel's going to reference in the next chapter, chapter 12, right? It's still the same vision. This angel is explaining to Daniel the things that are going to happen. And he says, okay, this abomination of desolation happens. And then in chapter 12, there's another one that's going to happen. And the, Daniel, uh, the angel who's speaking to Daniel says that the sacrifices will again be taken away and another abomination of desolation will be set up. And it's that second abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about when we get to the Olivet Discourse and the abomination of desolation that is described in the book of the Revelation. So Antiochus Epiphanes does the first one. He's already done it in 167 BC. And the Bible talks about a second one that hasn't happened yet in human history. That's going to be the Antichrist who does that one. So we want to keep everything separate that needs to be kept separate. Verse 32. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. 
When Antiochus came to Judea, there were actually a large group of Jews that were happy to join him in his cause. They are the ones that are being talked about in these verses, those who forsook the covenant, those who did wickedly against the covenant. They were happy. They said, hey, yeah, let's throw off Judaism. I'm a Jew, but let's get rid of this Judaism stuff, and we'll join the Greek culture. We'll Hellenize. We'll become Greek in the way that we do things. And they joined Antiochus in his cause. But like you see in the book of Exodus, when many Israelites were there worshiping the golden calf, there remained those who were faithful to God. They say, I don't care what these other people are doing. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do what's right, despite what's going on around us. And so uh, a priest named Mattathias and his sons followed in the footsteps of their ancestor Phinehas. Remember at the golden calf? All kinds of bad stuff was going on. Moses comes down, gets a look around what is going on. And then Phinehas says, hey, I'll put a stop to this. And he took matters into his own hands. And so a priest named Mattathias and his sons, they rise up to fill that position as well during this period. They fought against that pagan evil. This group of zealous men became known as the Maccabees, and they would lead a remarkable revolt against the forces of Antiochus, a miraculous revolt against him. Judas Maccabeus, in particular, was amazingly successful in the fight against the Syrians, bringing his people, quote, great honor while fighting, quote, with cheerfulness, the battle of Israel. It's written that in his acts, he was like a lion, wherefore the wicked shrunk for fear of him because salvation prospered in his hand. And so, truly, he did carry out great exploits, just as Daniel wrote. Verse 33 And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. Faithful Jews were mercilessly brutalized during this period of Antiochus attacking uh, Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. For a time, in fact, the faithful Jews refused to fight or defend themselves on the Sabbath. They thought, hey, he's outlawed the Sabbath, he's outlawed the Levitical Code, he's outlawed circumcision, he says we can't worship, we can't carry books of the Testament with us, we're going to do this no matter what. And the problem was when the Sabbaths would come around, they said, well, we can't work, so we're not going to fight or defend ourselves on the Sabbath. And the Syrians knew that and took advantage of it uh, brutally and ruthlessly. And so the rabbis got together and they ruled that the people could, in fact, defend themselves on the Sabbath. Now, during this time, Jews who were found with circumcised sons or obeying uh, or following the Sabbath or carrying any copy of, you know, the Jewish, you know, religious texts with them or weren't obeying Antiochus' command to worship the Greek gods, they were killed immediately and savagely put on display in the streets in horrific ways. Even still, there were many faithful believers who chose to suffer and die rather than disobey God. At the same time, we're told there in verse 34 that hypocrites were joining the cause as well. When it says many will join them by intrigue, the the words there mean that fakers, posers were going to be joining with them, people who didn't really believe but decided to join the revolution anyway. They weren't joining out of faithfulness, but for different reasons, and ultimately, 
the believing remnant would be purified according to the text here. Now, at the end of verse 35, there is a big shift. So far, all of the verses in this chapter have corresponded to events that have already happened. Now, in verses 36 through 45, we will be introduced to the ultimate villain of history, the Antichrist, for whom Antiochus Epiphanes is just the opening act. Have you ever gone to a concert just for the opening act? I did once. I went with my roommate in college. I went for the opening act. And then when the headliner came, I had something else scheduled. And I said, I'm leaving. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I said, yeah, I don't really care about this. And he was really into the other band. So I've gone to a concert for the opening act before, but that's not something you usually do. Usually the opening act is some random person you've never heard of and you probably never want to hear of again, right? Uh, That happens sometimes. But Antiochus is just the opening act for the Antichrist. He's the preview before the movie. The question that arises, though, is this. On what basis can we say that verse 35 is about the past Syrian king, and then suddenly in verse 36, it's about a future world ruler that hasn't come onto the scene yet? That's a fair question, and it's a good question to ask. We want to be careful and thorough as we interpret this stuff, and there are three major reasons why we recognize a shift here. First of all, at the end of verse 35, there's that telling phrase, until the time of the end. Now remember, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are all one vision. And this vision, we're told in chapter 10, verse 14, ultimately has to deal with what is going to happen in the latter days. And so the angel tells Daniel, hey, I'm going to show you a vision, I'm going to explain it to you, and this has to do with things that are going to the end of human history. And so we already have been told, we're breaking it up week by week, but we already have been clued into the fact that by the end of this vision, we're going to see the end of human history on the earth, right? And so we know that that is the purpose of it, the latter days. And so in verse 35, we see until the time of the end. Verse 36, till the wrath has been accomplished. Verse 40, at the time of the end. And so the language highlights the finality, the culmination, the end of things. The second reason why we recognize this verse being a shift from 167 BC to the future tribulation, the details discussed in the rest of the verses of chapter 11 simply haven't happened yet. You know, if you were here with us last time, you saw how each and every element was fulfilled meticulously in history in the exact order that it's presented. 135 different things that are cataloged there. And we didn't go through all of them, but we saw how it just flowed. History flowed exactly as Daniel wrote it. And so uh, you get to verse 36, though, and you, we find that what is described there hasn't happened. Verses 36 to 45, you can't find it in human history. It wasn't Antiochus that did these things. It hasn't been anyone else ever since. Arno Gabelain writes this, while there is no difficulty to prove the historic fulfillment of verses 2 through 35, it is impossible to locate anything in history which corresponds to verses 36 through 45. Now, the third reason why we recognize a shift to the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation in these verses is how the descriptions that we're going to read are going to line up with the other books of prophecy and passages of prophecy that have to do with the Antichrist and the tribulation, the rest of Bible prophecy, particularly the Revelation. You say, okay, these things are lined up. So we have a linguistic reason to understand that there's a shift here. 
we have a historical reason. These things simply haven't been fulfilled after a cascading huge list of things that have been fulfilled. And then we have the whole of the Bible prophecy telling us about, hey, here's what's going to happen in the time of the end. And now what Daniel is going to talk about in the remaining verses refer to things that we see in the book of the Revelation in particular. And so let's get into it. Verse 36, then the king, we're talking about Antichrist now, shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. So here's a first clue here, because Antiochus simply didn't do this. This doesn't actually describe what he did. He didn't exalt, he called himself God manifest, but he didn't exalt himself above every god. He set up an image of Zeus. He says, hey, everybody worship Zeus now. That's the rule. And so he demanded everyone worship the gods of the Greeks. Certainly he was a man of blasphemy and sacrilege, but it's not what we're seeing in verse 36. The king of verse 36 behaves differently. The Antichrist will arrive on the global stage with great charisma and effectiveness. He's going to be a genius. He's going to figure out a way to bring real peace to the Middle East, guaranteeing it in a seven-year treaty with Israel which is, by the way, that's the beginning of what we commonly call the Great Tribulation, the Tribulation period. Sometimes we think, well, the rapture happens and that's the beginning of the Tribulation. Actually, it's that signing of the treaty of the Antichrist with Israel. It will be a seven-year peace treaty and that's the beginning of the Tribulation. And we simply don't know how long a gap there will be between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the seven-year Tribulation on the earth. But just file that away. But at the midpoint of that seven-year treaty, the Antichrist is going to enter the temple, declare himself to be God, set up the second abomination of desolation, and then make war against God's people. As we've seen in earlier visions of Daniel, he's characterized by blasphemy and pompous words. Remember, this isn't the only vision in Daniel. We've seen a variety of them, and we've talked a little bit about the Antichrist in some of the earlier visions. But here's how Paul describes Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so that is who the Antichrist is uh, at his core. Verse 37, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall exalt himself above them all. Now, interpreters pull some really big conclusions from this verse depending on who you read. Uh, And some of them, we would say they're jumping to a conclusion and some of them, it's a little bit of a question mark here, but the, the big sort of flashing headlines that come out of this verse have to do with the first two phrases. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers and then nor the desire of women. From those two phrases, uh, some big, bold headlines come out, okay? So let's look at the first one. Some people feel that when it says he shall not regard the God of his fathers, they say this is proof that the Antichrist must be a Jew. He must be of Jewish heritage. And they also feel that this is a logical conclusion because, so the reasoning goes, the Jews would never accept a Messiah who wasn't Jewish in heritage. They would say, hey, they would never, ever enter into this agreement with Antichrist and recognize him as their Messiah if he's not Jewish in heritage. Now, there are a couple of issues with the insistence that the Antichrist be a Jew. 
One of them is textual, and one of them, I would say, is logical. First of all, when it says there, the God of his fathers, Daniel specifically did not use the word Jehovah. The God of his fathers, that's another phrase that you'll find throughout the Bible. It's used a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of times. And in English, it always comes to us as the God of his fathers, right? But in the Hebrew, there are variants of it. When it's talking about Jewish people worshiping the God of heaven, who we know, it talks about the Jehovah of his fathers. But Daniel very specifically does not use the word Jehovah here. Rather, he uses the more generic term Elohim. Now, some commentators say the phrase God of his fathers is a Jewish way of talking about Jehovah, and we agree when the Bible is using the name Jehovah. But there are other times in the Bible where it talks about the God of their fathers, and it's not referring to Jews or to the Jewish God. It often does that. It specifically doesn't say Jehovah here. Walvert again writes, for Daniel to omit the word Jehovah or Lord in a passage where a specific name for the God of Israel would be necessary becomes significant. And so there's a textual issue with the insistence that the Antichrist be a Jew. The logical issue with the insistence that the Antichrist be a Jew is that in this very passage, we see Jews embracing a ruler who is not Jewish. So the, the reasoning goes, the Antichrist has to be a Jew. We need to watch for a Jewish Antichrist because the Jews would never accept a, a Messianic leader who wasn't Jewish. And they say, look, look what Daniel 11.37 says, the gods of his fathers. And we would say, but this is in a passage that was just talking about how a big section of Jews accepted some Syrian Greek nut job as their leader. They said, yeah, you're our king now. Your gods are our gods now. We'll do whatever you want. They went along with him, no problem. And so here in chapter 11, I don't know if you can make the, a strong biblical case that, hey, the Antichrist has to be Jewish. And that's something that some commentators feel strongly about. It's not worth dividing over. It's just that the argument largely comes from this verse, and there are definitely some problems with that reasoning. I'm not saying that that's a terrible thing or that it's you know, out of the realm of possibility, but it's not an airtight uh, argument by any means. Now, the other phrase that is often seized upon from this verse and made headlines about is that the Antichrist will not, quote, regard the desire of women. What does that mean? There are a variety of interpretations here, at least three of them. One is that some scholars feel that this is referring to some deity that was historically sought after by women. And scholars will reference Diana of the Ephesians or Venus of Rome. I don't know. It's confusing when they're talking about that. I don't quite understand their reasoning there. Another interpretation that you hear sort of often because it's a grabby headline is that, okay, the Antichrist is going to be a homosexual. What? Wait, that's a jump to me. I think that's a pretty far leap. I think that's definitely putting something into the text that's not there. Maybe, but maybe not. Listen, first of all, it doesn't fit the context of the sentence. Look at the sentence up there. What does it say? It says, he's not going to regard God of his fathers. And then skip over the phrase we're talking about, nor regard any God. He'll exalt himself above all gods. He's talking about deities, 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 right? He's talking about divinity and who he worships, who he worships. It doesn't quite fit the context of what is being said to say, and by the way, he'll be gay too. That's kind of out of left field, right? And so... Uh, it's about God and worship. 
But let's say this, even if the Antichrist isn't romantically attracted to women, that doesn't by nature make him a homosexual. For example, our uh, last defense secretary, General Mad Dog Mattis, he was a warrior, right? And his book is about being a warrior. He never married. He didn't have kids or anything like that. Do we assume he must be a homosexual then? He didn't want to get married. If you saw, you'd be like, you're being a weirdo. The guy's a warrior. He had a mental path in life. Hey, I'm going to go and do this. And so I'm not trying to defend the Antichrist, but we need to be careful about the kinds of things that we're pouring into the text of Scripture. The Antichrist is going to be homosexual. Based on what? He won't regard the desire of women? It doesn't say, you know, the Bible has enough language to say he'll be a homosexual, you know? It could say that, but it doesn't. And so I just want us to be careful about interpretation because when Christians get sloppy with prophetic interpretation is when bad things happen. That's when, on a smaller scale, people start saying, well, I'm predicting the date of the second coming, and you get into trouble. On a much wider scale, misapplication and misinterpretation of prophecy is a lot of times where the cults go crazy, right? Where some of these people decide, hey, I read some, we talked about this in uh, previous studies, where the the Adventists took uh, some prophecy from Daniel and branched off of Christianity sort of altogether and said, hey, well, the mark of the beast is worshiping on Sunday. Wow, you just poured in something into Scripture that is absolutely not there. And so we just want to be careful. And you're going to hear, if you read about prophecy, if you read about the Antichrist, you're going to hear, well, he's probably going to be a homosexual. It's taken from this verse, and it's pretty flimsy. It's somewhat out of context for one thing. And number two, just because he's not romantically interested in women doesn't necessarily mean that he's therefore romantically interested in men. You know what he's interested in? Evil and wickedness and conquering the world. He's interested in just crushing everything around him and taking it to himself. He's indwelt by Satan. He's got other things going on than than being on a dating app. Okay, so, so anyway, I just, I, we just need to be careful, okay? Now, a third interpretation of what this phrase means points out that the term, the desire of women to a Jew would have been a reference to the Messiah. Faithful Jewish moms were all hoping that they would be the ones to birth the Savior. And so in that interpretation, it's saying that the Antichrist rejects the God of the Bible and the desire of women, meaning his son, the Messiah, born to a Jewish mom, Jesus Christ, instead setting himself up as God. And I think that fits context a little better than the other interpretations. Verse 38, but in their place, he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. He shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So the Antichrist is going to dominate the world through force and conquest. That doesn't mean everybody's happy about it. We're going to see that in just a minute. In the short term, he will reward some of his followers with material spoils. Now remember, Satan is always trying to counterfeit what God does in earnest. The Antichrist is the Antichrist, the false Christ. The, Satan is always trying to fake what God is doing or counterfeit it, right? And we kind of see a contrast here. 
this antichrist, oh, you're my followers? Here, I'll give you some spoils. I'm going to throw some gems at you and things like that. I'm going to reward you with some of this plunder that I've taken from these oppressed nations of the world. Now, compare that to what Christ is going to give us, his followers. He doesn't give us some spit of war-torn land that was taken from somebody covered in blood and ash and rubble. No, he rewards us with eternal riches and a place in his everlasting kingdom, which will never end. And so whenever you're reading about this stuff, particularly this end time stuff about Antichrist, the false prophet and all of that, always remember, okay, this is a counterfeit of what God is doing through his son, Jesus Christ. But the good times for the Antichrist are going to be short-lived by verse 40. He's going to have some real problems to deal with. Verse 40, at the time of the end, notice that phrase, the king of the south shall attack him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. Now, it's not altogether clear who these kings are when it talks about the king of the south and the king of the north here. There are those who believe that the Antichrist is not actually the beast of the Revelation, but that there are three, in fact, prominent figures in the tribulation. They would say there's the Antichrist, the ruler of the revived Roman Empire, a second guy, and then this king of the north seen here in verse 40. Uh, there's a few really solid guys who, who take that position. If you read those guys, you know, that's fine. They have great, great commentaries, but uh, their reasoning is a little bit complicated and to me creates more problems than it solves. While we can't be specific, what we know is that many of the subjugated nations of the world who are under the iron fist of the Antichrist, they're not happy about it. They're not happy about Antichrist's rule and will eventually mount revolts against him, and we are seeing that here. A coalition from the south and then forces from the north, they're gonna make their stand against the Antichrist and say, hey, we're gonna get rid of this dude. But they won't be successful. He's gonna crush their attempt at independence, at least in verse 40. Verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasure of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. One geopolitical problem follows another for Antichrist, but his strength will hold for the time being. He will decimate many foes, killing many, plundering their wealth. Jordan, what we know as Jordan today, it's going to be spared for some reason. We don't know why exactly. Egypt's allies, who, who thought Egypt's going to think, hey, these guys are going to fight with me, uh, uh, Libya and Ethiopia, they're going to abandon Egypt and instead give allegiance to the Antichrist, and it will seem like he's unstoppable. But then verse 44, but news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many, and he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. A huge army from the east will come to challenge the Antichrist, more opponents from the north also, and they will all gather together to wage uh, the final world war in the valley of Megiddo. But before they can finish their fight, Jesus Christ will return to earth in his second coming. We're going to be with him. He's going to destroy these armies, cast the Antichrist and his false prophet into the lake of fire forever and ever. The villain who seemed so powerful and so unstoppable will be helpless and defeated in the presence of the rightful king. 
Now, these prophecies are just as sure and just as real as the 135 found in verses 2 through 35 of chapter 11. We can count on the power of God, the veracity of God, the truth of his word. But before we close tonight, one small devotional thought for us. There in verse 32, we have that wonderful descriptor of the faithful Jews during Antiochus's occupation of Israel. It says, the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. What a great verse. They are contrasted in this passage with the wicked who turn their backs on God and who decide not to follow the Lord and to abandon their covenant with him. They instead choose the path of least resistance. They choose flattery, we're told, over integrity and fidelity to the Lord. And it's true that those who decided to follow the Lord in those days paid a great price, but their lives were of great value. They carried out great exploits, and not just Judas Maccabeus, but all of those who gained wisdom that Daniel talked about and preached the truth and honored the Lord even in martyrdom. They kept the covenant, and as a result, they were found pure, refined, and exalted by God. They shine like stars. Hebrews says the world was not worthy of these people. What a great testimony. And we see there how they were able to withstand the intense trials that they found themselves in. It says simply they knew their God. And as a result of knowing God, they were strong. The term to know there has to do with mental knowledge, of course, but it also means to regard and to recognize and to pay attention to God. It's a word of intimacy when you look it up. Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary says this, essentially this word means to know by observing and reflecting and to know by experiencing. And so it is through this kind of intimate, personal knowing of God that we as people are strengthened automatically to then honor God and serve him no matter our circumstances. That's what gave these Jews in Daniel 11 the ability to walk out of their houses with a book of the Testament under their arm, knowing it would probably mean death for them and for their children with them, and yet they did it anyway. Now, we don't want those kinds of circumstances, right? I don't want those kinds of circumstances, but we do want the kind of strength, don't we, that, that we see? We want to live that kind of faithfulness out. We want to be people who are carrying out exploits for the Lord in whatever ways we can, right? That's the life he sent us out on. But here we remember it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by the Spirit. And as we draw near to God and know him, experiencing his leading and his filling and his strengthening all the days of our lives, we will be filled and used the way these people were. We can shine like stars too, living out a life not worthy of this world, but worthy of our Lord. Amen?